Speaking of babies and kids, y'all ever been asked the question, why? You ever been asked the question, why? 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 That, that is a kid's favorite question to ask and has to be parents' least favorite question to answer. Nobody wants to answer that question a million times a day, but that's the question kids ask. And some of us never really grow out of it. You know, there are certain personality types that I think are more prone to asking the question why. Uh, the people you might call an overthinker. And are there any overthinkers in the room? Yeah? We always ask why. That's always the question we're thinking about. Why do I have to do it this way? Why has it always been done that way? And I think we're onto something. And just as one of these overthinkers might, would encourage you to ask the question for yourself. Now, they tell us that's one of the big questions that everybody faces in life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Why? Now, in our passage that David just read for us, Jesus shows the why of discipleship. He explains why it was that he went through the crowd of people who followed behind him and hand-selected 12 men. He explains it all, the why. He, he had called them so they could go on mission to the world. I mean, from the beginning, this sending in Mark 6, 7 to 13 is the whole purpose. It, it concludes a narrative arc that Mark began back in chapter 3. And Jesus has brought these men through a training program, and their training is complete. He's going to send them out on mission to the world. My argument to you today is that even though we live on the other side of the resurrection and in a time and place far different from the first apostles, this experience right here in Mark chapter 6 reflects back to us our purpose. It answers our why. I'm firmly convinced that every disciple is called to take the hope of the gospel and go on mission to the world, whether they're 1st century or 21st century. And so this morning, I want to show you from this passage what that mission is all about, and I want to challenge you. And when I say you, I don't mean the universal other. I'm talking about you in particular. Each one of us needs to be challenged with what we're going to see from this passage, and our church needs to take it to heart. So let's work through it. If you've been with us over the past 10 weeks, this is the 10th sermon in the series, Jesus the Teacher, walking through Mark's gospel. We've started in chapter 3. We're going to wrap up next week, uh, halfway through chapter 6. And over the course of these 10 weeks, I've really tried to draw out the theme of Jesus as teacher and disciple maker, trying to make the point that Jesus had a purpose in mind for these 12. Of course, back in Mark chapter 3, Mark flat out tells us that he went through the crowd and hand-selected. He called them by name for a purpose. He said that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so the 12 disciples have followed Jesus as observers and partners in his ministry. But now their training is complete, and they're going to send out with Jesus' authority to do mission on their own. Because of that, I think it's fair to say that this day, whatever day of the week it was and whatever month of the year, this day was the moment Jesus had been waiting for. It was the whole goal of his time with his disciples. He was going to say, all right, guys, you've learned enough. It's time for you to go and put into practice what you've seen me do for others. 
And that's where they went, on mission, extending and multiplying Jesus' mission to the world. In a sense, I want to say, kind of as a preface to everything else I'm going to say, their mission was, of course, unique and unrepeatable. Y'all don't need to call me Apostle Brad. You know, Brad is fine. And I'm not going to call you Apostle. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. But there is a basic lifestyle of disciple-making that these disciples show to us as they give us the mission we're all called to. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is the why of the mission. Mark tells us that Jesus was going around the villages teaching, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. Mark 6, 6, Jesus is going around teaching. Mark 7, Mark 7, he calls the disciples and sends them out in pairs. You want to ask why Jesus sent out his disciples? These two verses capture it for us pretty clearly. Last week we saw Jesus in his hometown, the synagogue of Nazareth, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he gets chased out of town. Do you remember that? How the people turned against him and wouldn't hear anything he said, and because of their lack of faith, he was unable to do miracles in front of them. So he went on, doing what he'd always done, to the next village in town to preach the gospel. I mean, everywhere through the first six chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus is teaching and preaching. In fact, he told his disciples early on in Mark 1.38 that the whole purpose for his coming to mankind was to preach the nearness of God's kingdom. He said, let's go to another place so I can preach there also, for this is the purpose for which I was sent. First six chapters, Jesus is constantly on the move, entering into a new town, proclaiming the nearness of God's kingdom, and calling people everywhere to repent and believe. I mean, he's a man in constant motion man who hardly had time to eat and rest. And yet, as busy as he was in preaching, in his humanity, Jesus could ever only be in one place at one time. When he's in Nazareth, he's not in Capernaum. When he's in the other villages, he's nowhere else. He's right where he is. And so his ministry of preaching was directed to the people that they could see him with their own eyes. But when he pairs up these 12 disciples and send them out, he multiplied his ministry, was able to cast a wider net. No longer was the gospel of the kingdom confined to the one place where Jesus was. Instead, there were pairs of men traveling with him on their own to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. See, I think this is the why of the mission. Jesus knew that there were people in Galilee who hadn't yet heard about what God was doing in him. And if those 12 men didn't go out and proclaim the good news, they would never hear. Because of that, these disciples weren't innovating some kind of new mission. They weren't brainstorming what their neighbors needed. They were simply extending the mission that Jesus had already begun. The things they had seen him do and the things they had heard him say, they took to those who hadn't heard yet. That's the why of the mission. They were called to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to announce the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the good news. And then they were to demonstrate that reality with miraculous signs that authenticated the message they proclaimed. At the risk of being repetitive, Jesus sent these people because there were villages that hadn't heard the gospel. That's why he sent them. This mission was the early proof of what Paul would later say in Romans 10, 
Verse 14, how then will they call on him who have they, in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's the why of the mission. Somebody's got to preach, and if y'all don't get to work doing it, nobody will. That's what he was saying to his disciples. And in so doing, he shows us, I think, the heart of God. You know, I think the heart of God beats for people who haven't heard the gospel yet. That's why the world's still spinning. Because there are people that Jesus died to save who haven't heard of him and responded to him in faith. The mission that he gave those first 12 disciples surely reverberates through the ages and applies to us as well because there are still towns and villages where Christ has not yet been proclaimed. I, mean, I love my, one of my favorite verses on this point is from Matthew 24 when Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached, shall be preached to the ends of the earth as a sign to the nations, and then the end will come. The end's not coming until the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Church, the why of the mission is simple. You and I have been called to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. There are people here today in our neighborhood who never heard the good news of what Christ has done. You know, there are 7.3 billion people on earth. Just over 2 billion of them claim the name of Jesus, claim to be Christians. That means there are more than 5 billion people on earth today who don't know Christ and will die and spend eternity separated from Him. Is that alarming to you? Five million, five billion, sorry, five billion is a big number. If you're like me, you know, you look at those big numbers and you get lost in them. It's like five billion, man, what kind of difference could I make? I'm just a single solitary purpose. I wonder if, what if we drew the circle a little tighter? Not the whole planet. What if we just took the 20 mile radius around our church? You know, there are 60,000 people who live within a 20 mile radius, a 20 minute drive of Central Baptist Church. Our state Baptist convention tells us that 65% of the state of Texas is unchurched. That means they, they don't know Jesus, they don't go to church, they're not thinking spiritually about life. If you took 65% of 60,000 people, that's 39,000 people within a 20-minute drive of our church who are lost and don't know Jesus. That's a lot of people. There are a lot of people in the world who have not heard the name of Jesus and have not trusted in him. They're the why of the mission. Some of these people are our cousins, and they're all our neighbors. I mean, unless we go, no one will. So that's the why of the mission. But I also want you to see the way of the mission. The way of the mission. You may have noticed Jesus had some particular instructions for these disciples. A little strange. You know, what's he up to? We read them again in verse 7. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but just to wear sandals. And he added, don't even wear two tunics, just because he knows some of y'all like your undershirts. You're like, you know, you're like me. But yeah, don't, don't even wear two tunics. I mean, Jesus sent his disciples on mission, but in a really particular way. There was a specific sort of set of circumstances that he expected them to fulfill this mission. 
under. First, he wants them to go in his authority. In his authority. And throughout Mark's gospel, the authority of Jesus has been right at the forefront. Mark's drawn our attention to it from the beginning. In Mark 1, the people in the Capernaum synagogue said, Wow, what is this? A teaching with authority. Then that authority extends to his power over unclean spirits. And he can just say the word, and demons flee from people. Then we see him heal lepers just by touching them. We saw him raise a little girl up from the dead. We saw him miraculously control the forces of nature. I mean, if you want to talk about somebody with authority, Jesus has a unique authority, something nobody had ever seen before. But here in Mark 6, we discover that this authority is transferable. What was unique and surprising in him, he hands over to these 12 men. It's amazing. This transfer works on the principle that any authorized delegate or representative can act on the behalf of the person who sends them. In other words, like in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, they spoke as authoritative messengers to God. They came in God's name, proclaiming to God's people what God had said. They spoke on his behalf, in his authority. In the same way, the apostles go in Jesus' authority to declare his word. They are like ambassadors. We're all watching the world's geopolitical turmoil. And everywhere you look, there are cabinet ministers or secretaries or ambassadors who speak on behalf of the nations involved. They are the authorized representatives of their countries. These apostles are ambassadors of the kingdom. And everywhere they go, they speak on the king's behalf and in his authority. Paul says later, In the book of 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So everywhere Peter, James, John, Simon, Judas, you know, everywhere these guys go, they're proclaiming a message, but they're not claiming to do it on their own authority. They're there on behalf of someone else. They are stand-ins, fill-ins, ambassadors for Jesus, Him making His appeal and announcing His good news through them. Jesus Himself reiterates this point later in Matthew 28, after the resurrection and before His ascension into heaven, when He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The whole disciple-making mission of the church is carried out in the authority of Jesus because he is ruling and reigning over all things, because he upholds the world by the word of his power, because what he says goes, he sends us to proclaim the good news. The apostles never preached or healed in their own authority or on account of their life or on account of the power that's inherent within them. They came and preached in the name of Jesus. And that's a good thing. Because as a preacher, I recognize that nobody can preach good enough to save a lost soul. Nobody can preach, you know, I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking that you go home and around the lunch table when you're discussing with your family. So what did you think about the sermon today? None of you are going to say, wow, you know, Brad just really hit a home run and my life has changed because of Brad Mills. No, that ain't the truth. Uh, if, if you make it out of here and you're still intact, I've done my job, all right? If any good thing results from today's service, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit at work by the name of Jesus through His Word. That's it. 
That's how every preacher does it. Nobody can pray well enough or hard enough to heal. So the disciples on their own are powerless, but in the authority of Christ, they can move mountains. So they go in the authority of Christ. But number two, they go in dependence on God. It's the second way they carry out their mission. And Jesus' instructions to the disciples include these stipulations about what they're permitted to take and what they have to leave behind as they go on their preaching and healing tour. Now, this is heartbreaking to me. I love the process of traveling. I love getting my itinerary set, printing out my hotel reservation confirmation, like laying out my suitcase on my bed, folding my clothes, rolling them up neatly, making sure my shoes and toiletries are right where they're supposed to go. I love it. It's like a ritual. I'm getting ready to go. Jesus doesn't afford his disciples that kind of luxury. He tells them what not to take, what to leave behind. There are interesting parallels between these instructions and those that God gave his people through Moses as they were preparing to eat the Passover meal in the Exodus. Uh, almost the same exact things. He tells them to eat with their, lo- their loins gor- girded, their staff in their hand, and their sandals on their feet. Because they're about to go. Apparently there's some urgency to the disciples' task too. They don't have time to go through their travel pre-travel ritual. They can't go to Target and get their cute little deodorant. They're going to have to just go with what they've got. There's some urgency to the mission. But beyond that, there's this sense of dependency. And they're not going to have the luxury of falling back on any of their plans or provisions. They're going to be living on the edge, like dirt bags flying from continent to continent, hanging out in hostels and just sleeping in the clothes on their back. That's who these disciples are. They're not going on a fully funded mission trip. They don't have any guaranteed salary. Now, at least if it's slow going, at least we know our meals are covered. They weren't dropping into a village with a team or resources, or even a building to preach out of. If there was going to be any success from their mission, it was going to all have to be from God. That's the way Jesus sent his disciples on their mission. And if you compare it to the way we go about ours, it seems pretty radical, a little little offensive to modern sensibilities. Compare the ministry models at work in most churches in North America. Think about it. How do we think we succeed in our mission? Maybe you've noticed Christians and churches typically think that the only way to carry out the Great Commission is with lots of money, with nice facilities. That's not on Jesus' radar. It's not the way Jesus planned to work. The way the mission's fulfilled is not through slick events, programs, or professional pastors. These guys are former fishermen, been following Jesus for a few months, Now they're ready to go out and change the world, not because of who they were, because their experience or education, but because of who God was. They were going to live and depend on him completely. There's always a temptation to do the mission our way and not God's way. But these 12 show us the way Jesus works is best. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2, and he talks about the way he carried out his mission. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching weren't in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's the way we carry out the mission. We lead with Jesus and let Him do the work. So that's the way. You know the why? You know the way? Now here's the where of the mission. He said to him in verse 10, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Here's the where. You know, as the twelve went out on the mission of Jesus, they traveled from place to place, village to village, town to town. Now, these places aren't named. Mark doesn't go into great detail about where they are. He doesn't even give us the general geographical context for this mission. He doesn't, like, line it out and say this is where they went and this is what they did. But Matthew does. In Matthew chapter 10, he tells this story, and he includes Jesus' words in verse 5. Don't go in the way of the Gentiles, and don't enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, the disciples have a really clear directive. Where are we supposed to go, Jesus? Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to the people of God who have wandered away. And so they went from place to place preaching with a clear directive. But as they went, they were always aware, because Jesus had warned them, that not every town would welcome them with open arms. Now, some would. He says some people would respond to their message with generosity and hospitality. These are the people who hear the gospel and open up their homes and say, wow, this is great news. Why don't you guys come and stay with us a while and explain it more fully? Surely this is more than the hospitality that made the ancient world tick. Maybe you are a historian and you understand that in the ancient world people were more hospitable than they are today. And they would open their homes to strangers because you didn't have an extensive family network. And when you went to a new place, you just had to rely on the people who were there. But this isn't that. This isn't the standard hospitality that was expected to be shown to any wandering traveler. This is the welcomed response of those who believe. People who hear the message and recognize truth in it and say, I want more of what you got. They're people like the Ephesians who invited Paul to stay with them for two years because they just couldn't get enough of Jesus. That's who the people are that Jesus mentions. These are the disciples. These are the people whom the disciples see soaking up the truth of the gospel and enter into their house to stay. Not just to enjoy their food. In fact, the early church has a document called The Teaching, the Didache, and it, it describes how long a traveling preacher is allowed to stay. And, and they could stay two days, but any longer than that, they were up to no good. And so send them on their way. So we don't know how long these guys stay, but they stay and heal and preach and cast out demons. And Jesus tells them, don't keep your eyes open for better opportunities that may come along. You know, you can imagine you go into town and the first family who opens their arms is a family in desperate need. They're people living by a thread. And so somebody comes in announcing the nearness of God's kingdom, uh, healing people, casting out demons, and they open their arms and their house to them because that's exactly what they've been hoping for. 
And the well-to-do family down the street starts to see something going on down there, and they come over and they say, hey, why don't you come and stay at our place? We've got more space and we've got better food. Jesus says, don't do that. Stay where you are and preach. But then on the other hand, he recognizes that some of these villages aren't going to be welcoming at all. And the disciples should just keep on their way. They're like the people in Nazareth or the scribes and Pharisees who've constantly been causing trouble for Jesus. He says, don't get too uh, upset about it. Just go to the next place. But before you do, shake the dust of that place off from your feet. This is strange. Seems foreign to us. Shaking dust off of feet. It's a, a sign and a parable that these apostles were called to perform. In fact, they tell us that it was common in Jesus' day for pious Jews who traveled in the land of the Gentiles to stop before they entered back into the Holy Land and take off their shoes and shake off the dust. So they didn't bring any sediments, physical or spiritual, from their journey among the heathens. And what's amazing is that Jesus takes this sign that was intended for people who were far from God and applies it to villages full of Jews, which in effect declares those Jewish villages pagan. I mean, it's wild to think about that a person who can trace their ancestry all, back, all the way back to Abraham could be on the outside of God's kingdom. But that's exactly the case, because in rejecting the disciples and the message they proclaimed, they were rejecting the one in whose authority they came preaching. They had rejected Jesus. And because of that, they opened themselves up to judgment. So the disciples preach where? Everywhere. And wherever they go, they proclaimed the good news and kept on going when people rejected it. They weren't called to prejudge the worthiness of a village. They weren't called to evaluate or scout out how they might be accepted. Instead, wherever they went, they simply spoke the word that Christ had told them. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, I think about some of y'all when I read that. You know, Lord willing, I'm rooted and I'm not going anywhere. But some of y'all are about to go off to college or get relocated for work. And those are really traumatic experiences, being uprooted from your family and friends and going to a new place. But think about what God does in that. That he's forming in you, Harley, he's forming in you all these confidences in who he is and what he's doing, so that when you go, when you're relocated, when you go off to college, he's sending you out to share the good news. Others of us, as we go, we're going to be in the grocery store, the coffee shop, in our workplace, and all around us are people. Some of them were tempted to think, hey, they don't, they're not interested. But that's not up to us. We're called to share the good news wherever we go and leave the results to God. Some people will receive it with open arms. Some people will reject it outright. But that's between them and God. All we can do is be faithful to what he's called and commanded us to do. And then I think about the rest of us who aren't going anywhere. I think about our church, which has such a unique calling. I mean, have you thought about how visible our church is? I know because you all have told me. You trim the trees, and it's like it just sticks out from the earth. It is amazing. Sometimes I, I, I think. How many vehicles drive by our church every day? And there's this constant, there's giant wind turbine things, and there's cow trucks, and then there's people, just people 
people. People all day. They're, they're, all, they're going everywhere. There's like five major highways that go from Luling, and everybody who passes through is on their way somewhere else. They're going to Austin, the coast, San Marcos, Houston, Harwood, Kingsbury. Hey, hey, you name it. The world, the road to the world starts in Luling, Texas. That's the way I think about it. You know, wherever you want to go, you can get there from right here. But not us. We're not going anywhere. We've been here 82 years. By God's grace, we'll be here 82 more. Why? My personal plan is to preach, pray, love, and stay until there's nobody left in our circle of influence who doesn't know and follow Jesus. That's it. Why has God left the lights on at CBC for 82 years? It's not because we've had the greatest preachers in the world. The guy up here right now is not that great. So we can't, you know. Uh, it's, it's not because we have the best people on the face of the earth, though we do. God has a purpose for us. He's got a where for our mission, right where we are. And there's no better place to be, no better place to serve than where we are. This is the where of our mission. But lastly, I've told you the why, the way, the where. I want you to see the Wow. Of the mission. Look at his summary in verse 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Wow. That's all I can say. Jesus took these 12 men, not seminary trained, spotty pasts, not religious professionals, and he sent them out to change the world. And the summary that Mark's give us is, they went out and were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. It's amazing. you got to think they were a little surprised. I mean, he had told the first disciples in Mark chapter 1, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in chapter 3, when he called them all by name, he said that I want you guys to be with me I'm going to send you out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. But I've got to believe that when the day finally came and Jesus was sitting around breakfast with his guys and he said, hey, it's, it's time, guys. Everything that you've been learning from me and everything that you've seen me do, I'm sending you out to do yourself. You've got to think they look at each other. He, what, did he, what did he say? He wants us to heal people? Who can heal people but this guy? He's the only guy we've ever seen who can heal like that. He wants us to cast out demons? I don't, I don't know if I'm up to that. This guy's different. I'm just, I'm just a fisherman. Oh, they must have been like us. They carried around this inner sense that they were bound to fail. I, I do this. I mean, maybe these sound familiar to you. You know, these people don't want to hear about Jesus. Now, these people, our culture has no place for Christ. Their people are set in their ways. They know what they want, and Jesus is not it. Who am I? Who Personally, who am I to share the gospel with these people? I'm not perfect, and I know that. Who am I? We have this inner sense that we are bound to fail. But I think the example of these disciples should encourage us. I mean, in his wisdom, Jesus didn't call 12 rich well-educated, well-connected men to be his disciples. 
If he had of, we would be doomed, you know? None of us can live up to those kind of qualifications. Instead, he chose the riffraff. He chose guys who were out fishing all day, zealots and tax collectors. I mean, he did not choose the best of the best. He, it seems like he delighted in choosing the lowest of the low. And I think he did that because he knew that when those men went out and preached repentance, and people responded, when they prayed and people were healed, when they laid hands on people and said, demon, you come out of him in the name of Jesus, and the demon did, then everybody would know it wasn't because of who they were, but it was because of Jesus, the one who had sent them out. And we may not be much. You may not be anything special. But wow, you're called by God. You've been set apart. You are hidden in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You are able to do more than you can ask, imagine, or think because of Him who's at work in you. Wow. Why would He choose us? Why would He choose this church and these people? So that the whole world would know that if anything good's coming out of CBC, God must be there so that He would get the glory. No, we need to refuse to accept the negative, pessimistic, defeatist attitude that you hear from so many Christians in churches. I'm, I'm fed up with it. If I get another invitation to a pastor's conference talking about how hard ministry is, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> it's not like Jesus sent us onto a battlefield in a losing fight and said, hey, y'all figure it out. He said, all authority is mine. Go make disciples, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He didn't give us a hope and a prayer. He gave us a promise. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And too many of us live like the best days for the church are all behind us. Like, wow, oh, it wouldn't have been great to live back then. Well, there's no better time to serve the Lord than the time in which we're living. God is at work in the world. He's at work in Luling, Texas. He's at work in North America. He's at work in China and Iran. God is on the move. Don't you sense it? Amen. And I think that God is looking for people who are ready to get their hands dirty, who believe that every disciple is called to take the hope of the gospel and go on mission to the world, who offer themselves completely, wholeheartedly in dependence on God and go wherever that He'll send them in His authority. Because they believe that there are lost people dying and going to hell for all eternity if they don't hear about Jesus. And so I might ask you, why? Why are you here? What's your purpose? The Bible tells us that God created our world. And he prepared this perfect place for you and me. But our first parents sinned against God, rebelled against his authority. And because of their sin, you and I are born with a sinful nature, something within us that's bent in on itself, not submitting to God's authority, but choosing instead to be our own authority and doing things our way. Around the time where, I don't know, four or five or six or seven, we add to that first sin with, all kinds of sins of our own. But rather than God condemning us to judgment all at once, the good God who made us extended compassion 
and kindness to us. He loved the world, and so He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I know that many of you have heard that message and have responded in faith. You've left everything else behind, and you've taken hold of Christ. That's why you're here today. You're here today because Jesus has transformed your life. A few weeks, I'm going to start a sermon series just looking at 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter describes the identity of the church as a chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people for God's own possession. And he says that the reason God has shown His mercy and love to us, the reason, the why, is so that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The why of your life, if you know Christ, should be all about Jesus. And having been forgiven, having received so much from Him, you owe Him everything. Your whole body, like Mike said earlier, as a living sacrifice. It's the only holy and acceptable way to worship Him. He doesn't want your songs. He doesn't want your cash. He wants every last bit of who you are. And if as you are thinking about your purpose and the way you live, it never comes to your mind that maybe I ought to share what the Lord God has done for me. You're answering the question wrong. You're here to tell others about Christ, to bring your family to Jesus. Everywhere you go, regardless of the people you're in front of, to always have a reason for the hope that's within you. We're called to go. And there are others of you who have never responded to that message of salvation through Jesus. You've never repented of your sins. You've never believed the gospel. You've never surrendered your life to him. And I know that you think about this question because I was there too. He says, why? What what am I here for? What am I going to do in life? I thought at one point I was going to be a real estate guy and I was going to own a bunch of rental houses. I was going to live easy. But that didn't work out. Now I'm a pastor. So as you're thinking about what you're going to do and who you are and why you're here, I can tell you why you're here, why you're here today. The God who made you orchestrated all the events of your life so that on March 27th you'd be in the seat you're in hearing the words coming out of my mouth so that he could prod and convict you to believe. Today he's calling you to respond. So if you've never trusted Christ, today is the day you should. Church, as we close, I want to bring you up to speed on something that's been working behind the scenes for about a year. Almost a year ago at our April business meeting, you voted as a church to put together a task force of people to think about the direction our church needed to go over the next five to ten years. You've helped us out by answering surveys and questionnaires and giving us constant feedback. And even though we're not done, we're not ready to share with you the whole plan. As I was preparing to preach this sermon, I had to share with you what we've come to an agreement about in the past couple of months. We sense that our future is defined by this mission. We've been saying it like this. 
We're going to share the hope of the gospel in our circle of influence until every man, woman, and child knows and follows Jesus. I believe wholeheartedly that that is our mission as a church. That is our mission as a people. You'll be hearing all about that in the coming weeks. But is that something you sense God stirring in your heart? Do you want to be a part of a movement like that, to share Jesus with people who don't know Him? Amen, me too. Well, let's ask God to help us.